scripture lesson this morning is from Ruth chapter 3. Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, said to Ruth, My daughter, I need to seek some security for you so that it may be well with you. Now here is our kinsman Boaz, with whose young women you've been working. See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now, wash and anoint yourself and put on your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor. But don't make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies and then go and uncover his feet and lie down. And he'll tell you what to do. Ruth said to Naomi, all that you say I will do. She went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had instructed her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and was in a contented mood, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, and then Ruth came stealthily and uncovered his feet. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and there, lying at his feet, was a woman. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. Boaz said, Remain the night, lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before one person could recognize another. For Boaz said, It must not be known that this woman came to the threshing floor. Then Boaz said, Bring the cloak you're wearing and hold it out. And she held it out, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her back, and she went home. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A school board in Utah has decided that the Bible is indecent, their word, not mine. The Bible is indecent and therefore inappropriate reading material for, ch for children, so the school board removed the Bible from its elementary and middle school libraries. Now, as you could just hear, Ruth chapter 3 might be one of those Bible passages a concerned parent might want to protect her children from. Now, if you made a film of the story of Ruth, especially chapter 3, and you filmed it discreetly, you might earn a PG-13 rating for your film, which is just right, PG-13, because 14 is high school. And in that Utah school district, the high schoolers can still read the Bible in their libraries. Little review, Naomi is a 40-year-old, childless, widowed Jew living in Bethlehem with her 24-year-old, childless, widowed, illegal alien, Moabite daughter-in-law, Ruth. Now, at the beginning of this story, we expected that a young Moabite woman living in Bethlehem, which is five miles from the holy city of Jerusalem, might have a rough time of it, might have a life full of trouble, dolor, and loneliness. But in fact, that turns out not to be the case. Ruth is doing just fine living in Bethlehem. Thank you very much. Everybody, and I mean everybody, is hugely kind to Ruth. That's one of the charming things about this story. There is absolutely no villain in this story. Not one. And so Ruth in Bethlehem has been gleaning successfully in the barley fields of a prominent 40-year-old landowner named Boaz, who takes one look at this unknown but fetching shiksa and is instantly smitten. Then Naomi swoops in 
to take care of Ruth's future, this childless widowed woman. Her fu- Naomi is like Fidelity or Charles Schwab. It's never too early, honey, to start thinking about your retirement. Let's start right now. And then you won't believe what happens next. Naomi, this observant, pious, God-fearing Jew, tells her Gentile daughter-in-law, honey, this is what we're going to do. You're going to break out your smokiest eyeshadow and your reddest lipstick and your slinkiest skirt and you're going to wear a come-hither tank top and you're going to go over to Boaz. That's not an exact translation, but it's very, very close. (laughs) So that's what Ruth does. She goes down to Boaz's house. It's very late at night. He's already eaten and drunk one or two or four glasses of wine. He's feeling very good. And he's drifting off to Never Never Land. And Ruth comes in and, as the Bible so delicately puts it, uncovers his feet. As you might guess, uncovers his feet is a euphemism for something a little less innocent than that. It's like when we say, she slept with him. That is not at all what we mean, right? We mean something different. We mean something less chaste. And not to put too fine a point on it, the Bible is telling us that Ruth seduces Boaz. And it works. Boy, does it work. Boaz marries marries this shiksa, And voila, Ruth and Naomi get a charming little farmhouse in the countryside with a mother-in-law suite, 401k, Blue Cross Blue Shield, and children and grandchildren. Happy, happy ending. Turns out Ruth and Naomi are shrewd little mothers. They're crafty, they're sly, they're somewhere between pragmatic and unscrupulous. They are not above using their feminine wiles to get what they need to survive. In one sense, I suppose, Ruth and Naomi are a microcosm of the entire female gender. Nobody's going to help us. We've got to make this happen ourselves. If not us, who? If not now, when? Because have you noticed that God is almost entirely missing from Ruth's story? God is invisible in Ruth's story. God shows up two times, twice, in 85 verses. That's not enough, don't you think? By the way, there's one Bible book where God doesn't show up at all. God doesn't appear. And if you can tell me which one it is, I'll buy you lunch. Anyway, in Ruth's story... God's providence is a stealthy influence lurking around in the shadows and at the corners of the story. God works through God's unassuming human agent. God doesn't reach down with a strong arm to manipulate human affairs. God works through God's charming agents like Ruth and Naomi and Boaz and Boaz's gentle, kind farmhands. It's funny how one small, modest, unassuming human life can make that much difference, right? Who can change the course of history. Every word we speak, every deed we do, every choice we make, every habit we form might have far-ranging consequences. Might be like dropping a rock into a still serene pond so that we can watch the concentric circles traveling out to the far shore. I just finished watching two of the most popular and acclaimed television shows of the last seven years. Ted Lasso 
is an American football coach from Wichita with a goofy mustache and almost no knowledge of English football, soccer. Even though he's the coach of a London soccer team, he knows nothing about English football. He has trouble grasping the concept of offsides. For 33 of the 34 episodes in this series, Ted Lasso has no idea what it means to be offsides in English football. But Ted Lasso is an Israelite in whom there is no guile, as Jesus put it. He's kind and humble and infallibly incorruptible. You try to correct Ted Lasso. Go ahead. Give it a whirl. Good luck. You hurl obscenities at him, it won't matter. In three short soccer seasons, Ted Lasso, by himself, manages to transform not just his soccer team and its individual players, but the entire community. Everybody who comes into contact with him becomes larger and more generous and more forgiving, fairer, kinder. Ted Lasso's decency is viral. It's contagious. It infects everyone it meets for the better. To change the metaphor, Ted's civility is like a drop of purple dye in a glass of water. It transforms every molecule it touches. Same thing with Logan Roy's towering malice, right? Because succession is the anti-Ted Lasso. Logan's greedy, grasping, vicious, voracious, narcissistic egomania wrecks everything around it. He manages to crush a family, to crush a dynasty. It's just like Ted Lasso's civility. It is viral. It is contagious. It infects everything it touches. To change the metaphor, Logan Roy is Midas. Everything he touches turns to mufflers. It's funny how one small, unassuming, modest human life can have such far-ranging consequences, can even change the course of history, right? Every word we speak, every deed we do, every choice we make, every habit we form ripples out to the far shore. Even a fourth grade teacher. I heard this story on the moth. Ryan Rowe was diagnosed with Tourette's syndrome when he was five years old. You know what Tourette's syndrome is, right? People with Tourette's have these uncontrollable motor tics and verbal tics, grimaces and groans and shouts at inappropriate, untimely moments. Ryan says that his Tourette's syndrome was his scarlet letter. It was the first thing everybody noticed about him. And when Ryan was growing up in his Pennsylvania school, it wasn't the other students who were his problem. They got used to Ryan, kind of liked him. They weren't unkind to him. Ryan's problem growing up in his Pennsylvania school were the teachers who were supposed to have his back. A new one every year. And so every year, the teacher, of course, would work hard to work with Ryan and it got along okay, but then about mid-year, Ryan would do something that would make the teacher's patience snap and she'd hustle him out into the hallway And she'd drag his desk with her and put his desk out in the hallway so he could listen to the lessons from out there. Or or she'd tell Ryan, you should be homeschooled or you should learn with the special needs kids in a special classroom. And when that happened, of course, the whole mood around Ryan changed. And this happened every year until the fourth grade. 
and Ryan met Mrs. Bragg. Mrs. Bragg was a force of nature. She'd been teaching for 30 years and nothing faced her. And so Ryan and Mrs. Bragg were working well together through the year. But at one point during the year, Mrs. Bragg gave her class a fun and challenging assignment. Every student was to do research on a famous Pennsylvanian and then make a presentation to the class. Isn't that a creative assignment? Do research on a famous Pennsylvania. Think about that for a minute. Famous Pennsylvanians. Betsy Ross, William Penn, Dwight D. Eisenhower, John Updike, Joe Biden, Mr. Rogers, Joe Madden, Mike Ditka, Taylor Swift, Ryan got Roberto Clemente. Ryan had a blast doing his research in the weeks leading up to the presentation, spending hours in the school library, and then it came to be his turn, and he's giving his presentation, and he's having one of these awful Tourette's days. Can't get the words out. All that will come out are groans and grimaces and gestures, and Ryan finally quits, and Mrs. Bragg rushes in, throws an arm over his shoulder, and escorts him out to the hallway and says, Young man, don't let this bother you. Roberto Clemente had Tourette's, you know. Ryan's amazed. Really, he says? Yeah, says Mrs. Bragg. He twitched just like you do. He had tics just like you. He had trouble doing his interviews, but he never gave up. And Ryan says, what Miss Bragg said meant so much to me. That's sustained me for years. Whenever I was having trouble, I'd say to myself, what would Roberto Clemente do? And I'd answer myself. I'd say, Roberto Clemente would ignore what everybody says and just work harder and never quit. This sustained me for years. But, he says, I never looked it up. Years later, I googled it. Roberto Clemente and Tourette's Syndrome. Nothing. Roberto Clemente had never had Tourette's. Mrs. Bragg had made it up to make Ryan feel better. And it worked. And so Ryan says, for years, my motto was, what would Roberto Clemente do? But now my motto is, what would Mrs. Bragg do? Fourth grade teacher, an American football coach, an immigrant farmhand in ancient Palestine, just a modest human life something to think about.